Our second guest this evening, Professor Ian Lowe, hardly needs an introduction, particularly in this region, which he calls home. Uh, he's a, a bona fide Australian treasure, an old man with the Order of Australia, currently Emeritus Professor of Science, Technology and Society at Griffith University. He's a former head of science there. He's the author of 10 books and uncounted articles. He's a former president of the Australian Conservation Society and the recipient of the Conrad Lorenz Gold Medal awarded by the International Academy of Sciences. And that's just to begin with. His new book, Long Half-Life, is a timely and riveting account of the political, social and scientific complexities of the nuclear industry, revealing the power of vested interests, the subjectives of sub subjectivities of scientists and the transformative force of community passion. Please welcome Ian Lowe to Milani. <laughs> Thank so, you, Stephen. But before we get into that, I should say I, I should have, I feel I should apologise for interrupting the wonderful discussion you were having with Luke. And <laughs> I'll always be grateful that the invitation to this event provoked me to buy the book and read it because it's a, a wonderful, a wonderful book, oh, and I really you. commend it to people. Yeah, thank you, um, and very generous comment. <laughs> thank you. I read this book, Long Half Life over the last month, and I, I've come up with a list. I've, I've got them all here of questions I have to ask you. But the one thing that I wasn't going to ask you about, because I thought it seemed irrelevant or perhaps too anachronistic or whatever it was, was nuclear submarines. <laughs> <laughs> and, yet, and yet, here we are. Um, there are political dangers for Australia in tying ourselves so profoundly to the US. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, certainly. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I actually devoted a few pages in the book to the issue of nuclear submarines because two years ago the Submarine Institute of Australia held a one-day seminar in Canberra to try and promote discussion of whether the next submarines should be nuclear-powered. And... Um, <coughs> One of the obvious obstacles was that the Defence White Paper of 2009 said explicitly nuclear propulsion is not an issue. Uh, it's not being considered. And um, there's no obvious military reason for it in terms of our defence. I commend the wonderful article by Professor Hugh White in the Saturday paper last weekend, uh, pointing out that, uh, in his words, the decision to get the French to modify a nuclear submarine to run on diesel-electric was crazy. But this decision is even worse. <laughs> uh, and he makes the point that if, if you're serious about defending Australia, uh, nuclear submarines are not very useful at all. The justification for the extra expense of purchasing and running submarines on nuclear energy rather than diesel-electric is that they can travel greater distances in deep water. Uh, but we don't have deep water around the north of Australia. In fact, somebody pointed out to me last night that uh, the nuclear submarines we're proposing to buy will not be able to travel through Torres Strait because they are too large to travel safely in, in water that shallow. So in terms of, <laughs> in terms of de defending our north against enemies which we are assured we don't have in 2040 when we have these submarines, the nuclear submarines are not very useful at all. I'm a bit kind of stunned by that. I mean, I've got, I've got, a, got a whole lot of other questions, asked, but I think I need to let that sink in just for a minute. You know, that, that, you know we, we, we know that they're not going to cost terribly much money, though, either. So that... <laughs> well, one of the other points that uh, Hugh, Hugh White makes is that uh, for 
what we are proposing to pay, and one can only guesstimate that because uh, nothing, there are no hard figures, there aren't even soft or flabby figures, uh, there's just speculation, but uh, you could buy twice as many useful diesel electric submarines for what we are proposing to pay and, and you could have them 10 years earlier. And he said, you know, just in terms of defence strategy, it's clearly a, a ridiculous decision. I know there's some speculation today that uh, the announcement last Thursday has really just committed the UK and the US to 18 months of feasibility study. And uh, I've seen some speculation that it could well all fall over, that this is just another pre-election stunt. Um, because historically the US has been remarkably reticent to share its nuclear technology even with its long-term allies like the UK. And um, I saw an article today suggesting that it's very unlikely that the US Navy will be enthusiastic about uh, supplying American nuclear submarines to Australia just because they don't like sharing that technology with anyone else. But you also don't particularly like the idea of nuclear-powered submarines engaging in warlike activity, do you? Well, I did make the point that it, it seems to me that uh, it's not a very good idea to put nuclear reactors in places where you know people will try to destroy them. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, I mean, a more general comment that somebody made in the 1980s is that building nuclear power stations implicitly presupposes eternal peace. Because in previous serious conflicts, power stations have been seen as legitimate targets. Because if you knock out power stations, you reduce the capacity of your enemy to produce armaments and, and wage war against you. Uh, and the consequences of even conventional explosives being dropped on nuclear power stations aren't, aren't too clever. But putting a nuclear reactor in something that you know if there's a serious shooting war, people will attempt to destroy... Um, seems to me a, a recipe for ecological pollution on an unimaginable scale. Well, I mean, that's, I'm just asking you just for a moment for our benefit to imagine it. What does, what does happen if you, if, you, if you put a... I mean, even if you use some kind of conventional weapon, you locate a submarine where it is that's nuclear-powered and you blow the bloody thing up, what happens? Well, presumably the radioactive in inventory will be spread into the ocean. I mean... Uh, something like eight or nine nuclear submarines have been lost at sea and sunk to the bottom of the ocean, mostly Russian ones, um, and we assume that uh, the, the, the sealed nuclear reactor is still stable down there under that water pressure and it hasn't disintegrated because there's been no obvious radiological consequences. But uh, if uh, a depth charge or a torpedo were, were to strike a submarine, presumably the reactor vessel could easily be split and the, the nuclear inventory could be released into the ocean. So that's, that's and, not... And does that... I mean, excuse my ignorance here for a moment, does that just mean that the, that part of the ocean becomes, and through currents everywhere else, becomes irradiated, or does it actually explode? Oh, no, there it, it would just be radioactive elements there. Uh, but those, in turn, could then be concentrated up the food chain. I know there's, there's concern in uh, Japan about um, the release of radioactivity into yeah. the water from Fukushima, uh, making it um, 
making people reticent about eating fish from that area. And uh, so the Fukushima accident didn't just make a whole area uninhabitable, but it's also dramatically reduced the prospect of traditional industries like fishing being able to continue. Yeah. So kind of going, I'm going to go back to kind of some of the questions that I had to ask. We'll park the nuclear submarine somewhere in the Torres Strait for a while. <laughs> um, Where they have just run aground, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> The, the, the more I read this book, the more I became aware that you're quite possibly the most qualified person in Australia to have written it. The, his, the history of the nuclear industry in this country is littered with a great list of acronyms and committees. I mean, really, there's a whole glossary at the end of acronyms no, to, of, of what they all are. Regulators, bodies, agencies, royal commissions, and it seems that you've either sat on most of them or prepared major submissions to them. So the question becomes not why you might have written this book so much, but as why now? Why now? That, that's a very good question. Um, after Chernobyl, most countries stopped ordering nuclear power stations and orders that uh, had been placed were, were cancelled. And um, if you were writing a history in 2000, you would have said that the nuclear power industry is now in terminal decline. Then, in the early years of this century, a small group in the UK had the bright idea of rebadging nuclear power as a low-carbon energy source. And this involved you know, a, a double backflip with Pike, because uh, historically <laughs> the nuclear industry had been in a life-and-death struggle with the environmental movement, yeah. um, and it required considerable agility suddenly to embrace the environmental movement's concern about climate change and uh, portray nuclear power as uh, the, the answer to a climate activist's prayer. Uh, and they had some success in, in that argument. In, in 2006, I wrote a quarterly essay uh, about whether Australia should use nuclear power. And some people said at the time, why are you bothering? And I said that I thought it was not beyond the bounds of possibility that John Howard, who was then Prime Minister, might eventually be embarrassed by his inaction in climate change and might try and raise the issue of nuclear power as a distraction. Uh, now, of course, uh, it, it's history that exactly that happened, that he asked Dr Siggy Switkowski to assemble a task force and tour the world and find evidence for whether Australia should embrace nuclear energy. And... Ziggy was chairman of the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, so he gave as good a case as you could. Um, but you can only bend the figures so far, and what he admitted was that you would need both a carbon price and other forms of public subsidy to make nuclear power look uh, economic in Australia. And um, the issue, again, sort of went off the table when Kevin Rudd was elected and uh, everyone forgot about the Sutkowski Task Force. But um, uh, they say that uh, you know, history comes in cycles and uh, you only have to sleep for 10 years and it happens again. And sure enough, uh, last year, Scott Morrison asked the House of Representatives Energy and Environment Committee to examine the legal impediments to nuclear energy in Australia. Um, and it's, it's interesting that the government actually thought that I mean, there are legal impediments. I mean, the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act explicitly says that there will not be nuclear energy in Australia um, because 
there was a significant number of Green Senators when that legislation was being enacted by John Howard and uh, they tacked that environmental clause into the, uh, into the Environmental Act. So there is a legal impediment. But um, even if there were no legal impediment, I can't imagine any electricity authority in Australia saying, why don't we build a nuclear power station? Uh, because it... it it just doesn't make economic sense now. I mean, yes, I think you give the I think you give the figures per kilowatt hour is uh, something like solar and wind are down to three to five cents per yes, kilowatt I mean, hour, and, and that's a dramatic change in the last ten years. I brought along ten years ago. Uh, Barry Brook and I wrote uh, a so-called flip book. It's called a flip book because it doesn't have a back cover. It has two front covers, and on one front cover it says nuclear power, yes, and there's an essay by Barry Brook saying why Australia should have nuclear power and my critique of it. And if you turn it over, it says nuclear power, no, and there's my essay saying why we shouldn't have nuclear power and Barry's critique. And at the time, um, we did a few double acts at writers' festivals and ideas festivals, and one of them, a member of the audience, said, how can two intelligent and well-informed people come to such different conclusions. And I said, well, there are things we agree on. We agree that climate change is a serious issue. We agree that we urgently need to reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We agree that the only credible replacements, relatively low carbon sources for the scale of electricity that we need in a society like Australia, are nuclear power or renewables, solar and wind. And we both agree that the generation of nuclear reactors that we have been using so far uh, have unacceptable problems, like waste production and <coughs> the capacity of misuse for weapons proliferation. Barry Brook is optimistic that a new generation of nuclear reactors can be developed that get around those problems. And he was pessimistic about both the economics and the practicality of scaling up solar and wind to meet the demands of a, an industrial society. Uh, on the other hand, I was sceptical about the promises of a new generation of reactors and I think some of that scepticism is justified because ten years later they are still on the drawing board rather than uh, yeah. on concrete pads. Uh, and I was optimistic about the prospect of solar and wind both becoming more economic and being more widespread. And I mentioned in the book the, the actual figures. In, in 2009, Globally, the average price of solar energy was about 36 cents a kilowatt hour. Wind was about 14. Uh, coal was about 11. Nuclear was about 12. Gas was about 8. Last year, the averages were solar 3.7, wind 4.1, gas still 8, coal still 11, nuclear now 16. So uh, in economic terms, you know, the, the argument is over. And that's reflected in what's happening around oh, the world. Excuse me, the National Party is still putting a case for a nuclear power station. The, the, the argument's not over at all. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, um, among people who can read... <laughs> people who can read joined-up writing and do takeaway sums, <laughs> the, the argument is over. And, and if you look at what's happening around the world, I mean, electricity authorities, by and large, do not have a green bone in their body, but they can do the sums. And last year, the world commissioned 192 gigawatts of new renewables, 109 gigawatts of solar, 65 gigawatts of wind, 18 gigawatts of hydro, 192 gigawatts. How much nuclear did the world commission? Well, 
8 gigawatts of new nuclear came online, but 5 gigawatts of old nuclear was decommissioned, so a net addition of 3. 192 against 3. I think that's, that's a, bit of a bit of a vote in favour of, of renewables by yeah. the, the world electricity community. And in case you're wondering about coal, um, the amount of old coal-fired power decommissioned was actually greater than the amount of new coal. And it is true, as the National Party say, that coal-fired power stations are still being built. Yes, they are. But they're being closed down at a greater rate. And last year was certainly the first year in my lifetime, it might even have been the first year since the Industrial Revolution, where there was actually less coal-fired power at the end of the year than at the start. Uh, and, I mean, globally the coal industry is closing down, which is why it is dishonest on a, a galactic scale to be assuring coal mining communities that they still have a bright future. We really should be doing what they've done in Germany, which is recognising that the industry is in terminal decline and planning for the transition. And in yeah. Germany they have a three-phase process, generous retirement packages for older workers, real retraining packages for younger workers, and a strategy of preferentially locating the new renewable energy systems in areas where the jobs are being lost from the old technology. Now, that is sensible planning. Uh, the trouble is that um, planning has become a dirty word since we've adopted the neoliberal economic agenda and there's this fantasy that the magic will cure the problems, but, uh, uh, the market. Yeah. And one of the difficulties that we have with actually kind of finding our way through any of the debate about nuclear is the, is the habit of people lying about it. That basically, you know, the history, your book is just yeah. a, a history of governments in various different shades and forms lying. Finland and Sweden have an advanced process of consulting with communities, getting acceptance for encapsulating the waste and putting it in stable geological layers. But in most other countries, uh, there is simply uh, ongoing discussion is the most charitable expression. And to remind you of how long we've been lied to about this, when the Whitlam government established an inquiry into the proposed Ranger uranium mine in the 1970s, uh, they argued that in thinking about exporting uranium, we should recognise two problems. One is that exporting uranium was unintentionally increasing the risk of nuclear war. And the second was that the, uh, they quoted the UK Royal Commission, the Flowers Commission, saying it would be unethical to expand nuclear power until we were confident that we could manage the waste for the unimaginably long periods that are involved. When the Fraser government decided to approve the mining and export of uranium, Malcolm Fraser told the Parliament and the people, the waste problem has been solved. Um, as a relatively young scientist, I thought it was probably not a good idea to accuse the Prime Minister of lying. Uh, so what I said was that this was a remarkably modest announcement of a major scientific advance. <laughs> because, of course, the problem had not been solved. And, uh, 45 years later, it still has not been solved. And, and this is where, in some ways, I was saying that there was a conjecture, a, a kind of connection with what Luke has been writing about, about the way that we um, treat Aboriginal people, because um, there's, there's two sides to this question that I'm asking here. Is the first is that um, Australia has often been promoted as a site for storing waste. 
because there are apparently large parts of the continent that nobody has an interest in, and therefore we could put find a place in the desert, dig a hole, put it in, put it in there. But the thing about Australia is that it was all Aboriginal land at one point, and every, these people still have ownership claims over it. And it seems to me that with our history of nuclear activity in Australia, Aboriginal people might have reason not to want nuclear waste on their land. Well, they have very good reasons not to. I mean, they haven't forgotten the fact that um, uh, Mr Menzies, when he was Prime Minister, approved the British testing their nuclear weapons on Australian land, first at the Montebello Islands, then at Emu Fields, then at Maralinga. And uh, there's some evidence that he didn't even consult his Cabinet colleagues. He just uh, decided it was our responsibility as part of what was then the British Empire. Um, and I quote uh, one British scientist saying, if Australia hadn't agreed, we don't know where we could have tested them because the Americans tested their weapons in the Nevada desert, but the UK doesn't have any Nevada desert type place where they can test weapons, so they would have had a real problem if we hadn't allowed them to, to test their weapons here. And there have been several attempts to locate storage just for low level waste, and this is comparatively benign. I mean, this is uh, lab coats and uh, materials that have been lightly contaminated in uh, nuclear medicine and uh, uh, experimental physics. And the, the level of radioactivity is relatively benign. I mean, if, if it's under two metres of dirt, the radiation would not be detectable above the background level that we experience every day. But for 20 years, it has not proved possible to find a community prepared to have that radioactive waste, that low-level radioactive waste uh, in, in their area. And there is now the fundamental problem, and historically we've ridden roughshod over the wishes of the indigenous people, but uh, anywhere where we want to locate radioactive waste now is part of the traditional land of one group of indigenous people. And if we're serious about taking their wishes into account, um, it is literally politically impossible, I think, to find uh, a site where we can responsibly store radioactive waste because every time the indigenous people have been consulted, they've said, we don't want it here. Yeah. There's a more general problem of not in my backyard because uh, when the Howard government was toying with the idea of nuclear power stations, the Australia Institute looked at the criteria for possible siting. It would need to be near the coast for cooling water, it needs to be near the electricity grid, ideally should be near a load centre like a major city. And they drew up a, a short list of about eight possible sites. And the tsunami of panic among sitting members of parliament had to be seen <laughs> as they all dived for cover and said, well, those others might be possible, but, but ours isn't. Um, and I think that's quite a fundamental issue, that if a government did decide it wanted to build a nuclear power station, it's almost impossible to imagine that the local community would welcome this with open arms. We have power. Oh. Now we've got sound here too. Look, there we are. We, 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 you can hear us again now. Let's just ask, is, is, has there anybody got any questions to ask right now? And We might just take, take, take them on notice and see how we can go with them. Yes, there's a gentleman there with his hand up. Um, oh, yes, we've got a roving mic for you as well, even. Look, we're... we're here we go. Okay. 
And then we've got a second hand there. I'm going to keep... Is there anyone else got a hand up? I've got two... No, darling, over, over this gentleman over there in the other aisle is the first one here. Ah, yes, thank you. That's number three. We'll just take that. Oh, thank you. Okay. Oh, uh, you're giving um, uh, nuclear waste a bit of a run there, but I've been worried that there's never any... Uh, mention of uh, Synrock, which Ansto has developed for encapsulating low-level nuclear waste. And you're talking about storage. I'm going to say, why can't you store it out in Maralinga? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, just can't, I can see that there's a, uh, a, a, a money um, income coming in from there if, if, if we can... Uh, store nuclear waste in this Synrock, which is an Australian invention, but not anyone has ever mentioned anything about it. Well, well, I've mentioned something about it in the book, uh, oh, so right. I encourage you to buy it and read that. But uh, <laughs> but, but um, I'm, I'm talking about the media. Yeah. Absolutely but, nothing. But, but, but to summarise, I mean, Ted Ringwood, the late Professor Ted Ringwood, had the brilliant insight that uh, we know that radioactive minerals are immobilised for geological time in rocks because that's where we find them and dig them up. And so he said the way to make radioactive waste safe is to embed it in a synthetic rock, which he called Synrock. Um, he developed the protocol for making a synthetic rock and embedding waste in it. And four of my colleagues in the School of Science at Griffith University did tests. And the Synrock is about 10,000 times better at resisting erosion of radionuclides by hot groundwater than the blocks of glass, which nuclear authorities have been telling people is quite adequate. Uh, and that's proven technology, but sadly, no nuclear authority in the Northern Hemisphere has adopted Synrock. And my interpretation of that is it's the lying again. They've been telling their politicians for 30 years that it's fine to embed the waste in blocks of glass. Now, I find that alarming because glass isn't really a solid. It's a metastable liquid, and it's not stable over geological time, even without... Uh, heat and radioactivity, uh, but they're not prepared to admit to the politicians that that was wrong and that they should embrace Synrock. I think it's, it's really tragic that there is there a potential solution to immobilise the waste and make it safe for geological time, but the politics has got in the way. But there's also the question that we were just discussing a moment ago, is that even, even if you can stabilise it in a rock, you've got to put it somewhere. Yes, that's right. And, and yeah the legal situation that we've come to in Australia in the early part of the 21st century is that you have to have um, community agreement to it. It's, yes. it, it. it's actually fundamentally in the law to say you can store nuclear waste, that you know, we can actually make this an industry in Australia where we can start making several billion dollars a year by storing nuclear waste from all over the world, but you have to have the agreement of the people who... Um, who, who whose land you're going to put it close to. Yeah? Right. And, and, uh, and also the, the agreement of the whole community, because the South Australian Nuclear Oil Commission recommended that Australia set up shop taking in radioactive waste from countries in the region that don't have stable geology, like Japan and Korea. And uh, they convened a citizen's jury to look at the recommendations, and the citizen's jury recommended two to one that... The, pro the, the project should not be explored any further, yeah. basically because they didn't trust 
uh, either the government or the private sector responsibly to manage a, pro a process as difficult and complicated as that? Oh, you wonder why. Can we have a second question here, please? Um, Ian, I've been wanting to ask this question for a long time. That's and a worry. Each, each time I broach the subject, I get nowhere with it. Um, in the Northern Hemisphere, mostly, I suppose, there are terrestrial nuclear stations that might, at some stage, um, outlive their useful life. What happens when a nuclear power station is decommissioned? What are you left with a lot of um, radioactive stuff to get rid of? Um, the, the short answer is yes. Um, and nobody has yet decommissioned very large reactors. And there's an argument which uh, I explore in the book. Uh, some financial analysts believe that there are nuclear power stations which are no longer economic but are kept running because as long as they're still running for at least one hour a year, um, <laughs> they are listed as an asset on the balance sheet. If they stop running, they become a liability and a quite significant liability because you have to cover the cost of decommissioning them. And um, some financial experts have argued that the French nuclear authority is probably technically insolvent if you look at the cost of decommissioning their reactors. And um, the, there are other authorities that probably don't have the financial assets yeah. satisfactorily to decommission the site and make it safe. Mm. Um, it's a principle that you know, when you finish an operation, whether it's a mine or a power station, you should try and restore the land to something like the pre-existing condition so that it can be used for other things. And that's a real challenge in the case of large nuclear power stations. Some years ago, I was doing a master's in New South Wales, and I took on a paper on decommissioning the cost of the Madnox reactors, which actually blew my mind. And it just struck me, I've never heard anyone talking about the cost of decommissioning these things. And they weren't very big reactors but they were horrendously expensive to decommission. And that's why I think you will, every time I argue against it, I say, look what it costs to take them apart. What do you do with them? That was my question. <laughs> yeah, and the answer is there's a lot of stuff that you just have to store with. out of harm's way for geological time. Uh, there are other elements that aren't radioactive and you know, they can be recycled or, or reused, but um, managing the radioactive waste is the ongoing problem. And a parallel with Luke's book is that just as there is selective forgetting of massacres, selective forgetting of atrocities in the civil war in Spain, there is selective forgetting of the fact that we enabled the British to develop their nuclear weapons uh, on, on our land. And there is selective forgetting of the fact that the Fox Commission in 1976 said that if we decided to export uranium, that should be subject to regular review and we should take seriously our responsibility for ensuring that waste is responsibly managed and that fissile material isn't turned into weapons. And there has not been regular review, there hasn't even been irregular review. Uh, the closest thing I found was a debate in the House of Representatives in 1982 uh, and the then opposition was critical of the then government, quite reasonably. Um, 
and assuring the community that they would do better things if they were elected. I, I told a group last night that when I was young, fairy stories began once upon a time. <laughs> These days they begin when we are returned to power. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, they were returned to power six months later and uh, nothing has happened, nothing has yeah. changed. Yeah, just a quick one for Luke. Look, you said you spent quite a bit of time in uh, small town libraries researching. Is there very much Indigenous history still preserved over there? Uh, there's, there's, there's quite a lot of stuff, in fact, yes, yeah. I don't know that it's all Indigenous history. There's, there's a lot of... Um, in the sense that, I mean, there is, some, there is some collections from Indigenous people themselves, particularly out at uh, Mitchell. Uh, see, I went to libraries in Mitchell, Kunnamulla, Roma, St George, uh, a couple of other towns. Um, I was I was surprised. What um, what really fascinated me were the the local histories, which had been sort of you know printed off by. I mean, it, remem it reminded me when I was a young boy. My father was an Anglican priest, and my mum used to run off the parish newsletter on one of those old you know, Gestetna machines. Uh, um, and there's a lot of material like that, a lot of material like that sitting in the libraries uh, of, of out in Western Queensland which talk about just day-to-day -day life and, and contact with Indigenous people and so on. And that's the sort of stuff which, you know, doesn't make it to, you know, uh, most history books, I guess, because it's, it's most people don't even bother to go out and have a look at that sort of stuff, and a lot of it's fairly sort of run of the mill, and you know. But when you sift through it, you just find all sorts of you get a really, really fascinating insight into uh, the life in those places. It's in some respects, it's probably an untapped resource of Australian history. You know? All those little uh, newsletters. So yeah, so look to answer your question. I mean, look, some of it dealt specifically with Indigenous history but not very much of it, some of it, but not very much of it was by Indigenous people themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jan, OK, sorry. I, d I just have a question or a comment um, to Luke. It seems to me that currently we have the example of Tom Wills depicting exactly what you talked about with people being quick to judge. Um, immediately after a report about from an American journalist, we've got AFL clubs deciding whether they will take down statues and withdraw awards immediately. It's um, you know it's it's a very quick reaction to one person's report. Yeah, the, the whole. Sorry, did you finish? No, I was just going to say, just, I'm just looking for a comment from you on, as to whether that's the sort of quick judgment that you're talking about. Yeah, it is, it is. I've, I've stayed out to the extent that I sometimes participate in debates on social media. So I've stayed completely out of the whole debate around statues because um, I just don't think that there's much really useful that can be said. I think that... I think that what we lose sight of is that every position that we stake out so fervently now, in two or three generations, people will look back aghast and say, how on earth could you be thinking that, you know? Whereas we're sure that, we, you know, we fought, this is the right position. This is, you know, after, you know, we've filtered through our history and we've, we, we've you know, we've taken this into consideration and that into consideration. And, and I mean, it's, it's certainly true that, 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 that there is a much greater level of social justice now than there was 
you know, 50 or 100 years ago. Of course there is. Nevertheless, I see people staking out positions now as if that's the final say on this issue. Well, it'll only take another generation or two and people will go, how on earth could you possibly be thinking that or using that language or that term or something? So, you know, these things are constantly changing. So I'm not... I don't buy into, you know, fixing down specific... Uh, you know, look, if they take down a statue of a slave trader, I don't have any problem with that, you know, particularly at all. Uh, but it's more... No, uh, you don't. I don't like. I get nervous when I see monuments being taken down and books being burnt. You know, there's been, there's been a book burning is coming back. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's terrifying, really. There's always the option of just ignoring that stuff. Okay. You know, we've got a, a final question here. Yeah, okay. yeah a question to Luke. Um, it, it appears that if you know, people in authority ask others to do atrocious things such as you know, the shepherds going out into the mm. south-west Queensland or the, um, the Moroccans who, who were let loose. Mm. Uh, is this, is this a kind of a, the way humans behave? You know, it, it seems to me this is, it wasn't conventional warfare in either case. No. And yet as someone who feels like they're beholden to a, to a boss who says, go and do this... Um, is that the human condition that, that they will they will do atrocious things in the name of uh, you know, the orders they've been given? And my second part of the question is: Is there you, the word is amnesia? I haven't read your book, but you've got the word amnesia there. So, is there total amnesia in those places that you describe in Andalusia and in Southwest Queensland as to what went on back then? Yep. First part of the question, far, far bit from me to comment on the human condition. That's, that's uh, asking a bit much. But um, there's, there's no doubt that... I mean, gave the example of somebody, you know, a boss in a workplace asking a person to do this or that. And you know, if it was unethical or something, I mean, there's a whole range of legislative and administrative procedures such that the person could not do it and would not do it. And that would be perfectly acceptable. Whereas we're talking in this case about extreme situations in, in different times historically where that's not to say those things don't still happen I'm sure they do uh, but but uh, you know I think because a lot of the behaviors that I was looking at there weren't laws in place to sort of regulate those sorts of things that's why another reason why I try not to be too judgmental of those people um, in terms of the total amnesia no no certainly certainly in Spain there's not at all uh, this, this is a lot of vibrant debate uh, and in fact, it's interesting because there is a generation now who are having this debate and the generation or two older than them are quite frustrated because they say, we, we did so much to put all this behind us, why can't you just let it alone? Because we, we're the generation that suffered through this and we grew up in the immediate aftermath and a lot of people went to enormous efforts personally, psychologically, to put all that trauma and that drama behind them uh, and now younger generations who want to, you know, find out more of that, which is perfectly acceptable, uh, have brought that right back into the public debate and it's not always welcomed. People say, look, you know, it cost us a lot to put that behind us. Why can't we leave it behind mm. us? So um, I don't think, you know, in, in Australia equally, I mean, you talk about in those places and I think there's a lot of awareness. Um, you travel around towns in Western Queensland, there's a lot of awareness 
I find, of the Indigenous uh, past now that certainly wasn't there 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Mm. Which is a, a, a good note to, to end on. In fact, there's been a couple of notes of optimism tonight. We had, oh, yeah. we had, we had, we had Ian tell us that you know, there's less coal fired power <laughs> in the true. world yeah. this year than there was last year. I think yeah. that's great. That's yeah. great news, you yes. know? Yeah. And, and you know, we're getting an, an awareness of our history. Look, I'd just like yes. to ask you to put your hands together for these two remarkable gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.